turn our Bibles this morning to Psalm 119. We are approaching the end of our time in 119. Verses 53 through 60. Last week we had a theme which was life. And, and out of all that we read, we pretty much looked at one word. Um, now, now we're going to read not quite as much as last week this time, but uh, we'll, we'll touch a little bit about the song and its context, but we're going to get to one word again this week, and it's truth. Now, I haven't figured it out next week, but I'm going to try to get the way in um, on the next section. So we've got John 14, 6, but uh, we'll see, see what the Lord has. So if you're able, would you stand with me? Our Heavenly Father, as we come before you today, we are grateful for your word. Uh, we're grateful that it, it does not change. It is not uh, based upon the culture or society or the whims of men, but it comes from you, and you have given it to us, and it, it is applicable and right, whether it is 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years from now. Lord, we pray that our minds would be sharp and opened, that you would give us understanding to your holy word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. <clears throat> Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget thy law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to thy word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek thy statutes. Great are thy mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to thine ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from thy testimonies. I behold the treacherous and, the loathe, and loathe them, because they do not keep thy word. Consider how I love thy precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to thy loving kindness. The sum of thy word is truth, and every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. And we're going to look at, as I said, at the context of the, of the psalm for a little bit. And the context is affliction. Something is going on in the psalmist's life. Somehow he is being afflicted, either through persecutors or a situation. And it is clear um, that what? For they do not seek your statutes, Lord. Salvation is far from the wicked. So these are pretty bad people that are afflicting David here in, in whatever way that they are. Now, affliction is not really what we want in life, is it? I mean, we, we're, we're not out there looking for it. I mean, it's like, yeah, I want to grow today in the Lord. I'm going to go out and get afflicted, or I'm going to go out and get persecuted, or something like that. But it's what we face often. It's what we face, but we do not face it alone. It, in fact, God's word, especially in this psalm, tells us how we can bear affliction and how we can understand it in its context and in its purpose. And this passage is going to teach us a variety of things. And the first one is that God cares about your affliction. And you may go, well, yeah. I mean, if I'm his child and he has created me for his glory and his purposes, you don't think he's up there going, ah. 
You go through that, I'll catch up with you later when you're done. No, no, he cares about our affliction, whether the affliction is great or whether it is small. Now, there are times in our lives, and I'm going to bet we've all been there, when we think to ourselves, there's just nobody who understands what I'm going through. Nobody uh, understands, what's the old song? Nobody knows the... Well, I've seen, okay, okay. And, and, and we think nobody understands it. And, and, and I'm going to bet, whatever affliction you have been through, you look around this room, there's one, two, ten people that have been through the same thing or something very similar to that. Now, so often in our society, we keep things to ourselves. We're not, you know, we don't live out here or, or put our, our heart on our sleeve. So often we keep it to ourselves. But there are plenty of people who understand what you are going through. And the Lord cares more than they do. The Lord understands. He has created you. He knows everything about you. He knows the words before they come out of your mouth. He understands your affliction. And in fact, he might be the one who's allowing that affliction to come into your life. But you see how the psalmist begins. Look at verse 153. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. In the midst of his affliction, he says, where am I going to turn? I'm going to turn to the Lord, and what am I not going to forget? I'm not going to forget the word of God. For the word of God, as we see at the very end, is truth. Now, when Christians cease to believe that God is in control, and in control of with, their, with our good in mind. Remember, we looked at this last week. God defines and provides what is good for the believer. We do not define what is good. He defines it. When we cease to believe that God is in control and that he provides our good, the things that are good in our life, it's easy to understand affliction as something that is terrible and just give up and say, well, this can't be good for me. So the psalmist is speaking of something very important here, that God cares about your affliction. Doesn't matter how big, doesn't matter how small, if you're his, you're right there. You might be in affliction, but you're in his hand. You might be in a trial, but you're in his hand. We're never taken out of that. So number two, let's look at a couple verses here, 154, 156, 159. They all say the same thing. Plead my cause and redeem me. Give me life. 156, great are thy mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Give me life according to your ordinances. 159, consider how I love your precepts. Revive me. Give me life, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. I mean, I think the second most used phrase in this psalm after some portion of your word, precepts, law, something like that must be, Loving kindness. Loving kindness. He says, give me life. You know how desperate I am in this affliction. Apparently the psalmist's life is even being threatened. They want to take his life, and in desperation he prays three times for the Lord to give him life. He doesn't look to the world for his salvation or his to be taken out of this situation, but God must be the one to do it. Now, sometimes you think about our own afflictions and what we get into, and we devise our own strategies. I'm going to get out of this. Okay, I know this is kind of this affliction, whatever it might be, has come upon me, and we devise our plan on how to get out of it, and then we go to the Lord and we pray, Lord, would you bless my plan? Uh, then that 
There's, there's something wrong there. What we should be doing is seeking the Lord's plan and praying, Lord, show me that I may walk in it. See, there's a difference between having your plan and asking the Lord to bless it. Lord, here are our plans. Let's say, oh, I don't know. Let's, let's make it somewhat uh, out of the ordinary. We are going to build, we're going we to buy up seven houses down here on Randolph, and we're going to knock them down because we got to overtake the historic society first. We're going to knock them down. We're going to build a gigantic building. It's going to be $20 million, and we have all our plans. And then we go to the Lord and say, Lord, here are our plans. We devote them to you. Will you put your blessing upon them? And, and I think, I don't want to speak for the Lord, but I think he's going to go, you stupid people, what are you doing? Okay, you can't do that. No, no, our, our job is to seek the will of the Lord and that we would walk in it. And that's so often we have it backwards. We want the Lord to bless our plan to get out of affliction. We do not seek his plan while we are in affliction. Now, what is the answer to this? Well, the answer is God, okay? This is like the kid's sermon. It's Jesus. The answer is Jesus to everything. The answer here is God. God is the one who determines and provides what is good for those who are his. So the affliction may end. The affliction may not end. The affliction may get worse. The affliction may get better. It doesn't matter what happens because God is the source of life. Real life is in his hand. Whether he hears us and ends our affliction or hears us and increases our affliction, he is the answer to our affliction. Notice that the psalmist specifies the basis of life. It is God's promise it is God's word. It is God's love. None of those are dependent upon our circumstances. None of those are, uh, you know, are, have any dealings with, with or, or are structured according to what the world thinks. These are everlasting. These are sealed. God's promise is the same. God's word is the same. God's love is the same. Uh, society goes up and down and changes, and we can have all kinds of emotional responses to those things. God's word is the same. It is true. It is the source of the answer, not our circumstances. It is God's promise, God's word, God's love. These things are far beyond us. They do not rest in the subjective. They are objective truths. You're going to hear that a lot. In in the last five or ten years, you've heard a lot of the differences between what is subjective and what is objective. These things, God's promises, God's word, his love, these are objective truths from his word. So that brings us to the third item. Now, there are about four or five more of these things on how to deal with affliction in our lives, but we're going to jump to this last one here, and that's the concept of truth. Verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth. Every one of thy righteous ordinances is everlasting. He tells us at the end that even under affliction, and he doesn't tell us what it is, but People apparently are trying to kill him. Even under affliction, I'm going to stick with your word. It is true. I'm not going to give up on that. I'm ready to bet my life on the truthfulness of your word. I'm surrounded by tormentors. Persecutors want to take my life. I'm going to entrust my life to the truthfulness of your word, Heavenly Father. And I believe they can be trusted and will be trusted for all time. 
Now, that's radical in this world, that there is objective truth that does not change, whether it was 2,000 years ago, whether it is today, whether 2,000 years from now, it is the same, and it presents a, quite a threat to our culture and our world, and truth is getting harder and harder to find, to define, define in our world. John chapter 18, Pontius Pilate said what? What is truth? Wow, he was a postmodernist 2,000 years ago, wasn't he? Because we can't define truth. Postmodernism, we're going to look at in just a second, it doesn't like truth. What is truth? And many people are asking the same question. Now think about the Bible. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. It shows its heroes, warts and all. Just think about it. The great people in Scripture that we, we, we target and we, we, um, we hold up. Abraham. Abraham was a big fat liar. Um, uh, David. Well, he was a liar and an adulterer and a murderer. Uh, Moses. Well, he had his own weaknesses there. Um, uh, who was it? Paul. Paul was a murderer, a persecutor before he came to the Lord. Um, uh, think of the, uh, the disciples. Well, they weren't anything special. It, it goes on and on. And, and it shows us, I mean, there are, there are passages, especially in the Old Testament, Kings, Samuel, it just looks like a, a, an, an afternoon soap opera there, okay? You find, you find people doing bad things. Well, the Scripture gives us everything. Now, one of the reasons the Scripture gives us the, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, I think, is so that we can look back and go, you know what, David was not perfect, do I have to be perfect? I must strive for obedience, but he had some pretty big hiccups in his life. Okay, maybe me in the in, in the in the depth I've I've really messed up something in life and I've been disobedient. Maybe I can look to David with some confidence to go. You know what? The Lord redeemed him. How he turned his heart to the Lord once again and sought Him with all that he was. So we see that. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat anything. It tells the truth about God. It tells the truth about man. It lays out the absolute truth about Jesus Christ. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Okay? Free. Free. And you shall know. It doesn't say you shall know a truth. It doesn't say you shall know any truth. It says you shall know the truth, the definitive article there. Now, there was a time in American culture when truth was not so slippery as it is today. And I, I mentioned postmodernism, and, and there's a great book, and it's, it's 16 years old, but it is still applicable today. Postmodernism in the Church by Phil Sanders. He suggested 16 years ago that as much as 70% of Americans believe there is no such thing as absolute truth. Now, I think we're going to look at, at something in a second to confirm that that's, that may be even worse today. It might even be worse today. And he, he describes postmodernism. Postmodernism essentially states there's no real knowledge in an objective or external sense that we can, be, we can perceive with our human senses. So therefore, there are no universal truths. No universal truths. Okay? That's what it says, basically. Their favorite philosopher is Friedrich Nietzsche. And Nietzsche put it this way. There are no facts... Only interpretations. Oh, I like that. Uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of partial to that. Why? Because I can look at something and talk about what I think about it, how I interpret it, and that's truth for me. 
Now, you can interpret differently, and, and, and the postmodern will go, that's okay, because that's truth for you. Uh, but that doesn't go so well when we come to Scripture, because Scripture is based on a, the rubric of objective truth, objective truth. So modern society, I'm going to just give you the quick facts. You can look it up and, and study more at, at your leisure. Um, we love interpretations because it leaves everyone open to define reality, to define truth as they think in their hearts. So the basic thrust of postmodernism is threefold. Threefold. All claims to truth, meaning, and value are social constructs. They're constructed by society. They are therefore impressionistic, relative rather than absolute, largely short-lived, and subject to erasure. I like that last one, subject to erasure. What does that mean? Don't get too worked up about what they say now because in a month it may be different. Okay, we can just wipe it out and start again. Secondly, there's no uniform reality. No big picture definitions. What matter is only the local, the temporary, the exotic, even the absurd. Social reality is to be subjected to a constant reinventing. So that way we get what was true for 2,000 years, we can redefine it and say, no, it's not true anymore. What was good for society uh, is no longer good for society because we're going to define what's good for society differently. Um, what has worked? Well, we don't think it works anymore. So we're going to change it, even though throughout history it has worked in that fashion. So social reality is to be subjected to a constant reinvention. The third aspect of this is since moral relativism and multiculturalism must prevail in postmodernism, the issues all become those of politics, race, class, gender, power. What matters in the end is not truth because there is no truth. Truth only as I define it. Rhetoric is important, and the more extreme the rhetoric, the better. Now I thought, oh, could I ever find an example of this? Just open up the political discussion, okay? And they, they, it's not hyperbolic. They immediately jump to the end to make their point. The nth degree, hyperbolic. Rhetoric, the more extreme, the better. Christians, as I said before, live under the rubric of objective truth. Okay. We cannot get away from it. If we get away from it, and we're going to look at some of the dangers, if we get away from objective truth as coming from the Lord, then I'm the one that defines it, and I'm the one that decides what the Lord really thinks over against what the Lord plainly says. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Those are absolutes. doesn't mean there's any other way, only the way of Christ. So why is truth so hard for people to come to grips with? Oh, I don't like some truths. I mean, because it, 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 I don't believe that way, but here is a truth. The Lord says this is the right way. This is the only way that you may have eternal life. Now, come on, he didn't mean that's the only way, did he? Mm, yeah, he did. He did, He did because he didn't give us any other options. I can remember interviewing potential pastors and, and, and they'd say, well, I don't want to put any, any limits on what the Lord would do as far as salvation. When I would ask the question, is there salvation outside of Jesus Christ? Well, in their best intellectual way, I don't want to confine the Lord in the way he might act. 
So the answer, the, the next question was, where in Scripture do you find that he may act in a way other than what he has said? Well, I don't know right now, because it is not. Okay, there is no other way. He makes it clear. That's one of the things that we can take confidence in. He has made it clear to us. So the truth of God is the most important thing in the world. It's more important than anything else. It's more important than everything else. The truth of God from his word. Why was there conflict in the ministry and life of Jesus? He told the truth. Hmm. He told the truth. He told the truth about what God wanted, and it was different than what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had said. It was different than what they were teaching to the people. Jesus said, no, this is the truth of God. And they hated him for it, and they pursued him until he was dead. Sometimes when you teach the truth and confront error, you'll get a positive result. People will believe, and their hearts will be turned to the Lord. And then sometimes when you teach and promote the truth, you'll get a negative result and people will hate you because you stick to the truth of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, I know this is a shock, the gospel is not politically correct. It does not really care about those things. It speaks the truth and political correctness doesn't always speak the truth. It speaks my truth as I interpret the world around me. So when we get questions like... uh, well, who's going to heaven? Well, how could you say all those people are not going to heaven? How could you say? There's this sweet little old lady who lives down the street, and, you know, she's, she's nice to her grandchildren, and she takes in stray puppies, and she always has cookies for the kids when they get off the school bus. Are you telling me she's not going to heaven? I was like, I, I'm not telling you. I, I'm just saying the Lord says in his objective truth there is one way to heaven, and it's only through Jesus Christ. People hate us for our absolutism, but it's not my absolutism. I mean, maybe that's protection for me. It's God's absolutism. He says it's this way. So it's not just a problem in our society as a whole. The search for truth and and the reliance upon truth and the confidence in truth is, is a problem within the church. I mean, the church is getting a little wonky on truth. Okay, We're getting a little fuzzy on it. How many of you remember going to a store and looking for the good housekeeping seal of approval. Okay, that's right. I can remember that. Okay, you'd go and you look for that. Now, I don't know why I was looking for it uh, growing up. I didn't understand it, but now I have a better understanding of it. It's the, the, if a product had the seal of approval, it verified its genuineness, genuineness, its quality, its price and reliability, and the GHS actually provided a limited warranty on that item, apart from the manufacturer, because it got the good housekeeping seal of approval. Now, since those days, when that first came out, the consumer protectionism, you know, you say the name Ralph Nader, and everybody goes, yeah, I remember Ralph, and unsafe at any speed, what was, what was that? The Corvair, thank you. Okay, you got those types of things. And consumer protection has really blossomed since then into a big business. Um, not so much in the church. Just think about that. Are there consumer protection agencies for the church? Well, technically, Randy and the Session are the consumer protection agency. Uh, and, and, and who oversees 
me, then it's the presbytery. You know, that's kind of our structure. That, 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 but in reality, there's little concern in the church for protecting us against faulty teaching, faulty, faulty doctrine, uh, faulty means, uh, whatever it, it may be. I mean, some of those things, the spiritual products look a lot like the self-help stuff on, on a different shelf in the, in the bookstore. Okay? Why does the church tolerate false religious materials, false religious teachings? Why does it seem, well, part of that is sometimes those practices, those themes, those views, they draw people in because they like it. They like to hear those things. And we don't want to be accused, certainly, of being exclusionary, being nasty and keeping people out. But yet truth is truth. And unfortunately, many people today, even the evangelical church, are questioning whether truth really matters. Is there a is there a value in an objective truth that we can rely upon? Or is it okay to be, to be a little bit fuzzier and a little bit more, in a sense, is my term, not theirs, worldly in the sense of, of accepting different things into the church for pragmatic reasons? It makes ministry easier if we do it the way the world does. It makes, makes the gospel more palatable if we couch it in these terms. Some flatly refuse to stand for anything. Uh, how many essentials are there in the EPC church? Seven essentials in the EPC church. An essential means what? Essential. Okay, uh, we're going to fight about it. You don't want to believe it? Well, the, the, we're going to fight about it, so to speak. But we, Lord bless you, you can go someplace else if you don't hold to an essential. And the essential is classic Orthodox Christianity, the sovereignty of God, salvation only in Christ, the authority of the word. goes on like that for seven things. Simple and straightforward. In essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, all things charity. Okay, all things charity. Now there are Christians who uh, want to soothe their consciences with uh, the opinion that few things in Scripture are really black and white. Um, they're not reading the same scripture I am. There's a lot of black and white in there. There's a lot of do this, don't do that, do this and rejoice, do this and know the Lord's blessing, do this and walk in the path of the Lord, do this and I won't tell you why you're going to do it, but I just want you to do it. That's what the Lord says. And there's, these things are dangerous. You want to involve yourself in sin, there are consequences to that. Consequences to that. Remember the repeating theme in the book of Judges. Every man did what was right in his own eyes, in his own eyes, every man was defining truth for themselves. Biblical truth is objective, objective. It is true in and unto itself. It is true whether, we, whether or not we feel it's true. It's true whether or not it's been validated by somebody's experience. It's true because the Lord says it's true. It's wholly true. It is true down to the smallest bit. In the entirety, Psalm 119, verse 60, the sum, the entirety of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous words endures for all time, endures forever, forever. Biblical Christianity is all about truth. The Bible is sufficient for our understanding. 
It is efficient for us to know the things of Christ. Our eyes are opened by the work of the Holy Spirit. Everything we need to know about life and goodness is there for us in Scripture, Second Peter chapter 1. I mean, God just gave us one book. If, there, if we would have needed two, he would have given us two. He only gave us one. And he put, it, he put everything we needed to know within that book. Authentic Christianity is the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Jude, verse 3. Christian truth is not nullified by changes in worldly opinion, by the standards that change within society. It doesn't need to be adapted and refined for every generation. It is the same. It is the same. We might think it's boring. I think there is safety there. There's continuity there. There's a demonstration of God's character in that sameness. The word of the Lord endures forever. So we need to adapt our understanding of the world to what God gives. Just like we need to seek his plan. We do not need to try to adapt scripture to our understanding in the same way that we do not need to say, Lord, here's my plan. Put your blessing on it. No, no. He is the one that doesn't change. We're the ones that go like this. We need to remind ourselves and be reminded he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. The church will never fully understand or manifest its power in society until we love his unchanging word. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, your word is truth. Again and again and again we find this, we see this. But, but so many people don't like it. We want to make our own truth. We want to do it our own way, and that's part of our sinful nature, Lord. Even the believer seeking after you and, and earnestly desiring the things of your word and the things of Christ, that our lives might be conformed to his example, to, that we might live out his mercy and his grace and walk in obedience and, and have the word of God light our pathway, that we may stay on the path veering never to the left or the right. But we know our hearts are fickle and, and, and there is plenty of weakness within each believer. But Lord, at our core, we must be reminded again and again But what your word says is right, it is true for all times. And you call us to conform our lives to it. When your word says to do this and to do it with joy, that's what we are called to do. When it says, don't do this, for there is danger, we're called to stay away from it. When you call us to, to walk humbly before you, that's what we are supposed to do. Remembering that those who humble themselves, you will exalt in your time. We're called to encourage one another and care for one another. To put our arms around our brothers and sisters and help them understand the truth of your word. To get them on the path if they stray. Or to receive the correction ourselves if we stray. To be pulled back in and to know the joy of being restored. To know the joy of, of understanding the things of Christ and his love and his mercy. Fix your truth in our hearts today, Lord. Open our eyes to it, whether it's the, for the first time. Maybe, maybe there's somebody here, Lord, who has never understood this before and has always thought differently. But now they see that, that Jesus Christ is the way and the truth and the life. 
that I need to have him in my heart, Lord, that I might receive him, that you have opened their eyes and their hearts are forever changed. And for those of us, Lord, whose eyes and hearts have been opened, don't let our passion dim for the truth of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.